7.45, waves of people holding national flags filled the streets of Seoul. Hundred years from today, which later developed into a nationwide movement that precipitated independence of Korea. So, hundred years on, uh, yeah, it would be definitely nice to have yesterday come out with a great denuclearization agreement, or or maybe an end of war declaration that would fuel further a celebratory mood. But we still have the legacy of those fighters a hundred years ago. To celebrate, and we have on the line a couple of special guests: Professor Donald Baker, Department of Asian Studies, University of British Columbia. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. And also, if I can start with you, Professor Erez Manella from Harvard University's History Department, author of the Wilsonian Moment, who's currently in Seoul. Good morning to you. Good morning. And uh, Professor Manella, can you start by telling us what actually brought you here? Is it actually related to this holiday? Yes, it is. Uh, I came here for a conference that took place earlier this week, um, marking the centennial of the March 1st movement. And uh, I, since I was coming to Korea, I had to stay to um, experience the March 1st anniversary itself. So I'm leaving tomorrow morning. Very good to hear, by the way. Uh, but uh, if I can turn to Professor Baker to to help us place this this movement in historical context. Actually, if we look back on history, and th- this might be a source of hope today, if you had looked at what happened immediately after the movement and and the fact that it still took decades to to realise the uh, practical independence of the of of South Korea and North Korea, albeit divided. Um, Maybe that's sort of a reminder to us to sometimes view things in a, in a longer-term perspective. That's right. As an historian, I'm used to the long-term perspective. Uh, but we did see some uh, relatively quick results of March 1st movement. We saw, for example, in April 1919, we saw the establishment of the Korean provisional government in exile in Shanghai. And we also quickly saw the Japanese rethinking how, how they were ruling Korea and kind of backing off a little bit on their harsher policies and for the next decade and a half of ruling Korea with a somewhat lighter hand. Would you, would you go so far as to say that we can find the roots of Korean democracy in that movement? It depends on how you define democracy. I mean, it, it's more nationalistic than democratic. They weren't asking for a democratic government. They were simply asking for the Japanese to go home so Korea could be ruled by Koreans. But if you define democracy as participatory government, Obviously, the, the masses of the Korean people were trying to participate in the decisions that affect their lives, like, for example, who govern them. So in that sense, I guess you could say it's just the beginning of what eventually possibly into full democracy in South Korea. Professor Manella, of course, this was within a global context, a, a, a time post-World War One when several countries were thinking about self-determination, weren't they? Yes, that's right. World War One, the armistice in Europe happened in uh, November of 1918, and uh, the war itself and the various declarations of Allied leaders um, and other events related to the war, including the Russian Revolution, created a great deal of expectations, not just in Korea, but around the world, um, that the post-war uh, negotiations would bring about a, a different sort of world, would bring about a world where uh, self-determination of nations would be recognized and where colonialism would uh, would pull back. Yeah, it was an era of revolution. It was an era of uh, 
a lot of ideals being pushed forward for Koreans. What do you think allowed them, under colonial oppression, to learn about the Wilsonian principle of the Paris Peace Conference and and to push forward with their own moves? Well, the the Japanese uh, colonial authorities were worried about precisely that, and they had. Uh, pretty tough censorship uh, of, uh, over news coming into Korea, but news still filtered in. Uh, people came through uh, the border from, uh, from China. People um, uh, managed to uh, get information in, and uh, the leaders in Korea that uh, signed the Declaration of Independence that led the movement uh, were certainly aware of events around the world and in, in Paris at the Paris Peace Conference, and in fact uh, were explicitly pitching and aiming their... Um, their appeals uh, to world opinion and specifically to the world leaders at the Paris Peace Conference to try to get some help from uh, from them in uh, in removing Japanese colonial rule. Professor Baker, some of the eyewitness accounts we have of, of foreigners who visited the Korean Peninsula in the early 20th century, they are scathing. I mean, actually quite disturbing to read of, of, of the treatment of, of the Korean people who were certainly not on board let's say with the with with the japanese but even vulnerable groups who were presumably just going about their own business young girls for example some of the abuse they they had to suffer what, what was the role that these uh, foreign missionaries for example played in, in bringing information to the country th- i would say the foreign missionaries uh, there was a couple of roles one good korea uh, one not so good uh, Many of the missionaries simply wanted to go about preaching the gospel, and so they tried to discourage their students, for example, in the Christian schools from going out on the streets, knowing that the students would get beaten up pretty badly if they did that. But there were the others who were determined to get the news out to the rest of the world, what the Japanese were doing. And some of them uh, with a great risk uh, to both their mission and their lives to get information out to, to the rest of the world on how cruel the, the Japanese suppression of the March 1st movement was. It's important to remember the Koreans protested non-violently. It may be the world's first mass non-violent demonstration against colonial rule. And the Japanese responded to the non-violent protests with brute military force. And the missionaries were very good at getting that information out to the world and what the Japanese were doing to these Koreans protesting non-violently. Yeah, I mean, because in many cases, these were not, uh, in inverted commas, tough guys who were standing up. They, they were women and young students, in many cases, who led Manse demonstrations. How significant is that? It is significant. One of the most famous martyrs in March 1st is Yuguan Sun, who was 16 years old. She was a student at Iwa Hotdog in Seoul, who played at Iwa University. And even after she was beaten and arrested, she kept shouting, long live Korean independence in her jail cell, until finally she was beaten to death by the Japanese. So the, yeah, the Japanese were were were... were were very, very cruel, to put it mildly. Um, there's a disagreement on how many people were killed by the Japanese in those demonstrations. The Japanese government said about seven or 800. Uh, that seems too low to me. The Koreans say it's more like 7,500 or so were killed. And remember, the Koreans were not fighting back with weapons. They were fighting back with their voices only. Professor Manella, I, I, I sort of feel tempted to ask you whether this spirit has to continue today even 100 years on we have the legacy in the sense of a divided peninsula and we here in south korea it's very difficult for south koreans if not impossible to to travel north of the border um and and we're still tied in by uh not colonial powers but uh global interests 
the, the likes of the US and, and China playing a key role. Do, do we still need to continue the fight for self-determination? Well, that's a really interesting question. Uh, question. There's a, there are a number of different things that one could read into the March 1st movement 100 years later um, in light of present-day events. Uh, one, is, one might be an emphasis on Korean unity, uh, which was part of uh, what March 1st meant. One might be an emphasis on rejecting foreign rule or foreign influence, which uh, might be aimed today at Japan or at China or at the United States. Uh, one, uh, which was the theme of the conference that I attended earlier this week, um, is to interpret March 1st as a call for universal citizenship, for uh, uh, a kind of lowering of barriers and borders between peoples. Uh, so there's a lot of different ways in which one could take and remember the legacy of legacies of March 1st. Professor Baker, again, taking into account your historical interest uh, and, and the fact you are looking in, in, in long, broad sweeps through the 20th century to today. How do you think we should be approaching this celebration, if, if you may be so bold as to, uh, to give us your thoughts on that? Well, I think Koreans are rightfully proud of what they did on March 1st. I mean, it's amazing to me that in, in 1910, when the Japanese finally solidified their control of Korea, Koreans were so dispirited there were a few protests. Yeah, but in nine years, suddenly the whole nation started in Seoul with 33 uh, members of the Seoul elite speaking out against Japanese rule, and it was soon followed by people throughout the country, young women, as you mentioned, farmers in the countryside. That's an incredible moment that Koreans should be very proud of, that they, their people stood up and risked their lives fighting for their to have their own country. And, Indeed. And got yeah, 200 years from now, they should, shouldn't forget it. 200, 300, hopefully by then we'll have yes. a resolution to the North Korea standoff. Professors Baker and Manella, thank you, both of you, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for talking. Let's get the traffic and weather.